Welcome to Blink of an Eye, life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down, and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Episode 11, Holding It Together. August 7th, Day 3. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Maybe you have been thinking about how you might deliver painful news about a family member to your child or to someone you love and what you would say. A nurse came and opened the door to the family waiting room and told us there were two others who had come into Archer's room and essentially that was not allowed and she wanted me to remove them. She was essentially scolding me. And then she said, it's really not necessary that you're all here. What? I get the two or more rule, but telling us it's not necessary to be together, she was dead wrong. And after that call Billy and I just had with our youngest son, Dutch, who was away at camp, I yearned for our family, all seven of us, to be together. I knew that yearning feeling. You might think it's crazy with the big family, but Anytime just one of them goes away for any period of time, like going off to college, oh, that's always hard. Or Dutch to camp. I pine for them and it stings for a few days. Our whole family dynamic changes. But what remains constant is that even miles away, we are still family. She's telling me it's not necessary? For all my years as a mom, 25 now, I have wanted the children to be independent and interdependent. And for better or for worse, I've never been a helicopter mom. But at the end of the day, most of all, I just want my family to all be together. And it's crazy because here in this hospital, while we are almost all here together as a family. I mean, except for Dutch, but we know he can't be here yet, but he will be soon, thank the Lord. We are not really all together at all. And then she comes and scolds me about the only two in a room at a time rule. Look, I just want to make sure a family member is with Archer at all times. And if there are three in the room or whatever, I mean, oh, it's hard to be in this hospital. There just isn't a place for families to all be together. Although I'm grateful for this family waiting room, and we have used it so much already. And I'm grateful it's just around the corner from our room as we use it all day long, rotating who is with Archer. But we haven't all really been together since our... Hmm, our family meeting with Dr. Radcliffe, was that just yesterday? And so much keeps happening. I don't even know how my big kids are doing. 
I want to put my arms around everyone. And I want Billy to hold us in a big hug like he does. I just want to cry, but there's really no time for that. Archer needs us. Oh my gosh. Earlier this morning, when Billy and Petey and I were together in Archer's room, another nurse told me it wasn't necessary for us to all be in the hospital like we are. It's unbelievable. Oh, ma'am. Yes, it is necessary. I knew she meant well, but I bet she's never had a loved one in the trauma unit before or ever been a patient in the trauma unit. Well, I hoped for her sake she had not. But as I think about it, it seemed easy for her to say that. Why? I'm not sure but maybe because she believed they'd take care of everything. Would they? Would they watch Archer closely to know when he seemed to smile? Would they make sure he had visitors? Would they give our son at camp updates to assure him? Would they console our daughter, whom I thought might be in some shock? Would they call the insurance company and fill out the many forms that were waiting for me in my email and a lot of medical questions? Would they call our friends and family and give them updates and ask them to pray? Would they hug us and help us stay intact? I know she meant well, but we needed to be here so we could go through this together. We need to be together. That's what we need. That's what Archer needs. I heard that next surgeon say, almost as an afterthought at the end of our family meeting. I heard him yesterday. He said, the ones who survive a spinal cord injury like Archer's survive because they have strong family support. Of course, Archer would survive. Right, Lord? We just have to do all we can to make sure we're okay, that our family is okay, that we stay together so we can be the support for him. Everything was going okay. Oh, please, Lord, please help Archer. And please protect us from any more harm for any of our children. Please, God, I know things change. But please help us keep what is good. We're family. I thought a good family. A strong family. Please, dear God, help us weather this. Please protect us and give us the strength to weather this. As I think about it, we need to do everything we can in society to support families and especially to support families who might be torn apart by a deep loss. We have to do all we can to encourage families to be together, everything we can. Those nurses should not have said what they said. It hurt, and I feel like I have to fight them now about that. You wouldn't believe the number of medical staff who come in and out of Archer's hospital room. They just pull the curtain back and walk right on in. Just this morning, 
so many. How is it that you can be in a trauma unit where very, very serious care and medicine is being given to your child, but you don't even know what that care is? I'm beginning to feel a little disquieted by that. I know they are the experts, but I am his mother. Every time I am bedside to Archer and a nurse or a therapist or a tech or whoever it is who comes in, I think those are the different kinds of people. I'm trying to figure it all out. I'm telling you. Each time they come in, I ask, may I help? If you tell me how, I'm happy to help you. I mean, why not? It takes four people 30 minutes to move Archer every four hours around the clock. And it takes about 10 minutes just to get him propped up ever so slightly on his pillow. I could learn how to do this. Another strong helper might be useful to them. But the answer is always no. Well, actually, the answer is not really a no, but is usually just a sort of quizzical look they give me as if they don't need any help. And then they just continue as if I'm not there. And they do need some help. I can see that. Archer is tall and now long. That's what takes them so long. They're planning to manage his body, to understand him. I understand him. And those tubes are many. I could help them. But I get the distinct feeling they think I'm in the way. I don't want to be. But it's awkward because I don't even know what they need to do so I can move out of their way. I mean, some have even just stood there. I'm not kidding. It's happened two times where the nurse just stood there at the end of Archer's bed, sort of staring at me, saying nothing until I figured it out that she needed me to move out of her way. It was not obvious. There are two sides to the bed. What was I supposed to do? She could easily have said, Hi, I need to get to the same side of the bed you're on in a moment. It'd be so easy. It's kind of weird, though, the way they don't really talk to you about what they're doing. And they definitely don't tell me what they need. Like, I'm supposed to know or read their mind or something. I guess, I mean, I wish I could, honestly. I want to know. I want to learn. The irony is that I think nurses think they're very helpful, and in, indeed they are. I mean, they are part of the helping professions. But it's really not helpful when they want you to read their minds or when they say nothing. It's kind of prideful, even. This place is so foreign. Have you ever been in the hospital and had a similar experience? I mean, I'm sure not all nurses are this way. And I'm wondering if it's just me. Well, even if it is, I want to learn and know. Archer Sempt is my child.
I'm also aware of this niggling feeling like I'm on needles and pins wondering how Archer will feel once the painkillers or whatever they give you after surgery wear off. I would think they would have worn off by now, but maybe whatever it is in those drip bags lasts a long time. I don't know. I do know now though that a drip bag is what they call those plastic bags hanging from the metal poles with thin plastic lines attached to them that lead to one of Archer's veins or another opening in his body. He's got a ton of drip bags. I have no idea what's in them. Oh, there's so much I need to learn. I asked one of the nurses. She said she'd have to check his records if she wasn't sure either. Whew. There seemed to be a small lull of activity in the room. So I went to text my siblings, my brother Tripper in Illinois, my sister Elizabeth back at our place in Cape May, my brother William in New York, and my sister Lillian in Chicago. Oh boy, where did I leave off? What have I already told them? I looked at the last text update I had sent them. It was last night before leaving the hospital to head home. Oh my gosh, that seemed like a million years ago. Here is that text. Another day. In the wee hours, Tripper called and I felt myself really breaking down because I knew I could. I am so grateful to you all. Elizabeth showed up driving all the way from Bethesda. She and I had talks with the medical team. Then Will sent an amazing story of a jockey with the C5 broken, who made a full recovery. That buoyed me tremendously. Then I was summoned by a nurse to the house phone on the wall in Archer's room, and Lillian called. No idea how you did that, Lil. Archer is responsive, but only opens his eyes a bit here and there. He has smiled. I swear he has. He smiled at Billy when we told him about the prayer chain, and later when Dewey and Petey brought him his phone and read him the text on his phone. I vacated the room on that, but here's a picture. You can see he really is listening. Looks like we will be here two to four weeks and then home, maybe sooner. <sighs> I had to stop reading that for a moment. I felt the weariness in my eyes. Last night, his lungs. It's hard to believe how quickly things change. Please, Lord, help Archer's lungs. Please, please, dear God, send your divine grace. I will do everything you ask me to do here. Just guide me, please. What else did I tell my siblings? I began reading the rest of the text. I said, We're figuring out a protocol. I never want a moment when someone is not in the room with him. When here, we touch his arms and massage his hands and feet as we all know the power of touch. His right lung collapsed in the afternoon. His left lung collapsed tonight. Result of trauma and seawater in the lungs, they said. 
They did lung therapy on him a number of times, including three male nurses beating on his back to simulate a cough to get air, they said, into the little air sacs. After they did that, the next x-ray was better. We are repeating x-rays every four hours until we get the lungs to inflate again. I had an hour discussion with Surgeon Radcliffe. Here's a picture of him, too. I'll text more about that later. I think our prayers now need to be specific for daily gains. Prayer for gratitude. He's out of the woods for death. We trust. We hope. But he needs to get off the ventilator and needs to be able to breathe on his own, which he can't do yet because C4 and C5, which is the part of the neck that broke, controls shoulders and diaphragm. And it took my breath away to understand that everything else below is damaged or just doesn't work. Oh, Lord, please pray. We have prayer change from coast to coast and north to south. I can't even begin to respond to them, but we need any prayer and any intention that people want to offer and say, please keep up your good spirits for us. We can have a miracle. Archer can experience a miracle. We just don't know when. He already is with the outpouring of love and support. Yes, I really do believe that. We are experiencing a miracle now with the love that is uniting us and holding us together. I thought of Tripper's call to me and my crying hard. I'm so grateful for my family. Thank you, Trip. I think it was the first time I cried. But you know, in a recent interview, I learned some new information. My interview was with Leah Marino Barsby, who was, in 2015 at the time of Archer's accident, Davis Barsby's girlfriend. Now, you might recall meeting Davis earlier, who was part of Archer's rescue off the beach at the beach club in Cape May. You know, Davis, who made the call to me while I was driving? Well, Leah was later with Davis at Atlantic Care Hospital in the first many hours after I had arrived. I had not remembered both of them there. But I also did not really know Leah then. I was, I walked away like, oh my God, I hope one day if like I ever have to experience something like that, that I'm that composed or that I'm that like able to stay professional and stay focused. Um, Cause they were coming at you with a lot of stuff. And like, I remember a doctor came in and um, at one moment and we were in the room with you and, you know, you and Davis had talked and you'd, he'd, you'd ask him like, tell me exactly what had happened. Like, what do you remember? And he talked you through that and you would get a call or somebody would text you and you come back in and, you know, um, then the doctor came at some point, like, and, and I don't remember everything verbatim, but I just remember the doctor coming in and he was kind of like, I need to talk to you about what we're looking at here. And he looked at Davis and I, um, and he was like in private and you were like, no, 
this is family. They are here with me. This is family. And I need them here with me for whatever I'm going to hear. And I just like took this big breath, like, oh my God, we're about to hear like every mother's worst nightmare. And um, I don't remember exactly what he said, but he kind of started off with, okay, this is what we see. This is what we're looking at. And then it started to get really like intense. Like, we don't know if he'll walk again. We don't know if he'll, you know, if his breathing or something with his lungs were collapsing. And they kind of were saying like, the chances of his survival were X, Y, and Z. And you went from this like lawyer composed mediator to just crying this, the loudest weeps. Um, and that in that moment, like Davis went up to hug you and hold you. And I stepped out and I just was like, she needs this moment. She just needs to be held by Davis. She doesn't need all this outside noise and distraction. And the doctor and I like left the room. Um, and Davis just held you. And I just remember hearing like this, like the most saddest, like howls and just the deepest, you know, sorrow and cries. You know, I really have no specific memory of that or of Davis, but it's the strangest thing because when Leah told me her memory of what I did, I felt it. I felt it throughout my body, even though if you had asked me, I'd say I didn't remember periods of time. But when I felt it just recently, I sort of saw it like a flash as if I were observing myself and I saw and felt that I just let go. And I remember the feeling of like, of like, like a mother wolf in a trap. And there was nothing that could prevent this deep animal like howl of torment and helplessness. I felt that howl. Oh my God. I felt it rise up from within me like a sad, sad, anguished roar. I can't quite explain it to you, except that I hadn't actually remembered it in my mind, in my memory, but I felt it in my senses, like sensate memory, something primitive. As I'm telling you this, I realize maybe we will explore this more fully if you're interested. Surely there are others of you who have experienced sensate memory. Even though you didn't have the memory as we would normally think of a memory in our minds, I think this memory is stored someplace else in the body. Hmm. I don't know, but maybe we'll explore more about that later. I really wonder a lot about memory. It's like the cells of our bodies remember, or our divine soul knows. 
you know, then like uh, once again, like Davis broke down, like it was so crazy. Like he would go, both of you were going from these strong, like poignant, like we, you know, just had it all together. And then like reality would hit and you'd realize this is Paula's brother. This is your son. And you know, then the emotions just, you know, flood you. You guys were in there for a while and Davis texted me like, I'm like, I'm just going to stay here. I'm going to stay by your side. And I was like, you guys, you know, Davis came out and he was like, she wanted to go pray. She wanted to go to the chapel and pray. I feel like maybe Davis said it was a chapel because that's what you were calling it. Yes. Right. That's what I, you were I kept for. asking repeatedly. Yeah. The only thing I knew to put a salve on my ripped heart and to ease my sorrow and anguish was to pray. And yes, you might remember I was looking for a chapel. But what I really wanted to do was find a place where I could collapse. I just wanted to surrender to divine will. I also wanted to take care of my child. It was all instinctual. And I guess the hospital thought I was crazy. But it didn't feel that way exactly. It just felt like something bigger than I am was happening to me and something I could not control. You, you had it more together than you, you might think. You really did. I mean, I, w- I want to talk about that because yeah. I think there's something really extraordinary that happen- I, I look, I've been finding my notes and they're so cogent. I mean, they're like, and, and then I have, for instance, no memory, none of seeing you yeah. when you were even there or of Davis holding me. Yeah. Uh, I have a text though, where I had asked Davis to go get my laptop because yeah. I needed something to write on mm-hmm. and with and where it was in my car. And I gave him very specific directions mm-hmm. for where I had parked my car. Yeah. And then I was just blank because mm-hmm. he would say he goes she knew exactly where her car was but she would keep asking me where she was yes like and he had reminding you we're in atlantic city we're at the hospital and you would say which one i know one of my kids is her but which kid is it yeah, it's, it's archer but like at the same time though you were writing everything down and you were asking all these questions that were like very in tuned to the situation. Like you knew somebody was hurt. You knew you had to, you know, turn it on in that moment. And like, I think your, you, your body just went into robo mode. Like you just like, but then at the same time, like, you know, the world's crumbling around you. And then you'd have these like breaks of, and like, you couldn't remember what day it was, mm-hmm. um, what time it was, where you had come from, where you were going like, I wasn't there for all that. Davis was telling me that later because I had stepped out of the room. So, but he was saying to me, like, I think he had texted me, like, she can't remember what day it is. She doesn't remember which kid it is. He's like, she's going into like, she's in shock. But at the same time, like, there were glimmers of you wanting to make sure you were doing all that you could to document and to ask the right questions because you knew that you were going to rely on that later. Yeah. Um, 
Like, like I knew I needed, like I knew I couldn't remember. So I needed to write it down accurately. Yeah. So I would have and it that was going to be like your life. I do, I do remember that, mm-hmm. that, that I knew I needed to, because mm-hmm. I couldn't then. At the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. It's crazy how the brain, what it's capable of. Yeah. Kind of these two entirely different. It was kind of like in the moment your brain was, you know, you know, that with trauma, like that you, you black things out, like your brain wanted to black out what was happening to you, but like your years and years of experience and professionalism, like also was kicking in to tell you, like, write it down, document, have this written. Cause like you wanted to know that you were prepared for what was to come and that you're, you know, you're giving me goosebumps. I've been thinking about that now on reflection, and I don't know how to explain it to you, except to draw an analogy that I was like a set of ordinary blinds on a window. You know, those little plastic or metal blinds that open and shut, you know, everyday blinds with little slats that open and shut with the twist of a wand. I think of those slats in the blind as my emotions. And I think of what's between the slats when the blind is open as my thinking and my logic and my judgments and my projections and my analysis and problem solving, my views, what's in my head. And when I open, which is most of the time during the day, my emotional slats and their edges get really thin just from the slight twist of that wand, purposefully thin, so that you don't notice them much, so that they don't get in the way of the thinking. But even during the day, my emotions are always there, framing and filtering everything I view. It's just that no one wants to see them that much. So they are as thin as possible. People think they block the view. But when I close the blinds, like at night, to rest, or when the thinking is wearing me out, those thin edges become flat, wide slats, smooth, interlocking, layered on each other, lots of layers and complexity, threaded together by sturdy lace. And my emotions now have permission to be fully experienced without all the thinking. For me, it allows my heart to guide me and fill me with joy and also of pleasant nothingness. And it's a feeling, a feeling of being carried. The interior, pure. But on that day, the wand on the blinds of my life were opening and shutting so quickly, I was getting scrambled. It was like when I got the call, I couldn't get a Wi-Fi connection. So I drove and navigated 50 minutes to the hospital without a map. Yet, 
I blocked out where I was and what city I was in. And in the hospital, I asked complex medical questions from a doctor, but blocked out any memory of talking with that doctor. I gave detailed directions to Davis where I parked my car, but blocked on what hospital I was in. I knew my child was gravely injured, but I didn't know which one and couldn't hold the thought that it was Archer. I wanted to pray and was searching and asking for a chapel and then just collapsed, falling to my knees, begging for God's mercy. And I knew they needed my consent and I wanted to give them my consent, but I wasn't able to figure out where on the paper and how to write my name. And I knew they were doing serious surgery on somebody, but I couldn't hold the thought that it was neck surgery on Archer. It was just so weird. The blind kept opening and closing quickly over and over, highly functional and alert, and then totally shut down. It's weird. And it was not, oh, she's in shock and couldn't function, or she's in shock, we need to admit her. It wasn't like that at all. And when I did fall to my knees, it was like I was closing the blinds. They were not being open and shut on me anymore. In all my anguish, I found rest, and my emotion carried me. It did. I closed out the world to tune in to God's love of me and my love of God, and it swept me away. And I felt God's mercy. I think emotions are one of the greatest gifts of the divine. I just want to pause right now because <laughs> I have so far to go on this journey and thank you for traveling with me. I have no idea what lies ahead. The only thing that's constant for me and maybe for you too, depending on what you believe, is unconditional love. I have felt closer to the communion of saints and the spirits of all the ages and the Holy Spirit grace ever since I collapsed that night over and over on the floor of Atlantic Care Hospital. It was so raw. But I want to feel that pure, unconditional love and grace every moment I can, even if only for a moment. Will you join me right now? Will you feel it with me? I mean, it's always there. But I get wrapped up in life and I forget. I just want to be carried just once, just for a moment. Close your eyes with me. Imagine you are relaxing like you're melting, collapsing into darkness. And then 
seeing a flicker of light and surrendering to that light as it grows stronger and stronger. The loving hand, the palm held by the divine and feel carried. Isn't that wonderful? You see, I knew that something was happening to me that I couldn't control and I needed to surrender because there was nothing I could do. And I also knew I could process, but I didn't have the regular tools anymore. But I was aware. I also was aware of how narrow my vision had become, that the field of data I was allowing in and was focused on now was very narrow. I guess trauma is like that. And I don't think we understand enough about trauma yet. But I am hopeful that the world is opening, even cracking open for better understanding, so we can respond with love and compassion. It's a lot to try to take in and understand the brain and the mind. For me, the experience and this ongoing experience is really shaped more by my relational interactions. So Davis and Leah staying there with me, holding me, and then Petey coming and allowing me to collapse and then lifting me back up again and advocating that I was just upset and not crazy. I think that created more healing than any pill or restraint or wheelchair. And I am forever grateful I was not removed from the very event that was life-defining for my child and for me and for our family. Like, I don't remember ever seeing one. I wasn't there with you with one, but like, uh, he was just, he just said, I, I, he, cause he spent extra, like an hour or so with you. I was in the waiting room cause he was just like, I can't leave her. He was like, I can't leave her, you know? the nurses like are putting her in a wheelchair. They're worried about her. He was like, I have to be here to make sure that if, cause they were worried that they couldn't have you give consent. I remember directly. I, I got a little bit agitated actually um, because what, what passed over me is I was aware that they needed consent and I also could not write my name. Mm-hmm. And I also did not know, where I was. And I was aware that I couldn't write my name and that I didn't know where I was, but I couldn't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I called then Billy mm-hmm. to, to facilitate that. And that, now that was a strange, that that's a strange thing to, yeah. to happening with, with your mind. And I remember that vividly. Yeah. And so Davis is, Davis and I think he kind of just felt like, she's not in a good place right now. And at least I know that Paula and her dad can contact me. Like, cause he, you know, if you're thinking about it, you're stuck in this car, you're in traffic, you don't know what's going on there. And he just felt like if they can't, if she can't give the messages, I can at least be that soundboard for you personally, for the family to be able to keep updated or know what's going on. Or 
if, you know, the nurses had to ask Billy any questions, like he just knew like he couldn't, we couldn't leave. Like we just had to stay there until the family all got there together. Like yeah, guys, Davis was the surrogate family member. Yeah. Like he knew like you needed your unit and like we, we were, the, we could only, we were the only ones that we had to hold you together until your unit could come to you. You know, like it was just kind of you, this. You, like, you were my unit, Leah. Well, I don't know. I just feel like I, you know, you have to, it was just the craziest thing. Like you just, I've never been around that life changing moment before. It was a life defining moment. It's not a look back kind of thing to know it. It was a now kind of thing right then. I knew too that our lives were changing forever. We didn't know what was ahead, but it was never going to be the same but I was not alone. And it was like there were two little angels in the waiting room. And it just felt so clear that we were where we were supposed to be and that everything kind of just fell into place that like, this is where we're supposed to be. This is our mission today. And it's to like, do what you'd want if it was, you know, your family. And that's just... But we did. You know, there's just to pause for a moment. There's a lot. There's a lot of wisdom, you know, in that. That for anyone else who is able to be with somebody else in a in a trauma, to really stay with them, mm -hmm. really, really stay with them, and don't pass them off for being crazy. Yeah. Um, until other others can arrive mm -hmm. and it could be a complete stranger. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It could be a complete stranger who, who, who is the surrogate family. I watched Archer closely as he lay in the hospital bed. I love him so much. He is so much more responsive today. Yesterday was kind of scary, the way we'd only see the slits of his eyes from time to time. I wonder what is going on for him in his mind. Does he know we are here? I wonder what does go on for anyone when they have been in a trauma accident and then they have major surgery and they're totally out of it. What was going on in his head? Was he aware as well? but just not able to respond? I saw little glimmers of outward responsiveness yesterday, but not really that much. But today, as I watch him, he's really paying attention to Pete reading to him. I don't fully understand that surgery they performed, but our meeting yesterday that Paula, Pete, and I had with Dr. Radcliffe was helpful. I'll tell you more about it later. But as the hours passed, all I wanted was for everyone to come together, to be together. You know, I don't have a sense for how much time passed or what time it was, except for that big clock that hung in the trauma unit hallway. And you know what I was scared about when we were waiting for the surgery to begin? That Archer might change his mind and lose his will to live. 
I wanted to make sure he would come out of that anesthesia. I've read about that, that some people won't come out of anesthesia if they don't want to return to life. You know, Leah mentioned something else in the interview about what Paula, Pete, Billy, Dewey, and I were doing right before Archer surgery, once everyone had arrived. I had forgotten about this, but it came flooding back to me. I remember it clearly now. I'm so grateful for these interviews. It is so helpful to fill in the pieces of this journey. I think while we were in the waiting room, Pete showed up. I remember we just wanted to wait. We wanted to wait for Paula to get there. Like we knew that you were good. Like you had Pete, like your family was now arriving, but Davis was like, we have to wait for Paula to get here. I just need to see Paula. And I think it, she, it was dark. I mean, it was late whenever that was. Um, but I, I just remember feeling like, oh my God, because at some point, you know, they were stuck in traffic. And I was like, how are they ever going to get here? I just felt like it was the worst situation. It was, it was a Thursday or Friday? Wednesday. Oh, I just remember like there was, it just felt like there was a lot of traffic. They were, it was right that four or five o'clock time where you have to go around the Baltimore. Like I know that whole 95 route. And I was like, they're never going to be able to get here. Like it's going to take them for forever. And it felt like, I mean, I don't know if they remember like how long it really did. Paula said they actually were um, sort of paralyzed. They didn't know what to do. And Billy had asked them just to wait until they heard further from me. Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm, you know, kind of a mess. And so they actually didn't leave for almost two hours. Yeah, it felt like a long time. And she came out and just gave us a hug and like thanked Davis. And we just talked briefly for a few moments. But, you know, you guys were all there. You were like this, this unit and you all were circling, you know, and you were all holding hands and I knew you were all just praying and having this moment of like your family, just giving him all your energy before going into this big surgery. You know, I just vividly remember like, thank God, you know, because you could just feel the energy that you all needed to be there and just let, just give him your energy before, you know, going into this, life-saving surgery. You know, I had forgotten what we did, but yes, this came back. They wouldn't allow us to see Archer as a family before surgery, but I remember feeling we could be together and send Archer our strength. I recall saying to the children and Billy, let's say a prayer for Archer. And in my heart, I was praying very, very hard that Archer would come out of anesthesia. I knew nothing of what that surgery was about, whatever they do in neck surgery. I was concerned with the anesthesia. I remember concentrating so hard to send him brainwaves, our collective brainwaves, and asking God to send them to Archer to connect us to him. Yes, all of us holding hands, holding it together, having our arms around each other, and sending our message to Archer. 
just say no, no, no. Like, like we like we're right here Archer we're here. I remember we, Archer we are right here we're when you're here you we're all here surgery we are we're all, all here. here yeah we are all here and we're gonna be right here when you come out of that surgery yeah and yeah. I it's just this really I feel like it was just like you know I don't know what the word is for it but you guys all just became one you know, just, you were all there one and just all just one. I really don't want to leave Archer's side in this hospital ever. I hope those nurses who told us we didn't need to be there understand that because, well, I don't want to be in their way either. And I want one of us as a family, a family member by Archer's side at all times. We need to go through this together and for everyone to know how important their role is. Dutch too when he gets here. Oh, I wish those nurses could understand that. I just want to work together with this hospital for his benefit so that he makes it, so that we all make it. Please don't add more to our family medical staff, please, please, God, help them see that no family has the energy to be against anyone rendering medical care to their child or to withstand anyone on the medical staff being against them. There are too many balls to juggle to have that kind of petty distraction. Whew. I'm aware that Billy and I are both a little wrung out. As we walked out of the family waiting room, back to Archer's room, I heard a nurse jovially yelling down the hall to another nurse something about a discharge. August 7th, she said, today. August 7th. Archer was injured on August 5th. Has it only been three days? Well, I am so glad we are all here together, and I'd say Billy and I are both relieved that we had told Dutch now about Archer and that he knows. I'm also relieved Billy's in my argument about the chest tube operations cleared the air about the importance of our communication for everything now about Archer. Parents can spend a lot of energy worrying about their kids, you know. And if you have more than one, well, you know, we worry about all of them. Although, as I hear myself saying that term worrying, it doesn't quite fully capture it. It's closer to the whole truth, I think, to say that parents spend a lot of energy caring and caring so much about their child's well-being, their children's well-being. You know what I mean? <sighs> well, if it is worry, Worry just leads to anxiety and sometimes to arguments or shutdowns. I don't want that. And I don't want to fuel my own anxiety by the way I think. Caring, on the other hand, leads to right action. I hope. I care a lot about my children. I'm sure you do too about your child, all your children. Okay, so caring might just be a reframe for anxiety, but hey, 
it sure does help, doesn't it? I mean, to say you care moves you forward because it comes from your heart, not your head. And you can then consider a good plan without getting paralyzed in inaction or regretting impulsive action. Well, that's what anxiety seems to produce for me. The more I think about it, I don't think it's a reframe at all, actually. <laughs> I think it's a totally different worldview. You might have some thoughts about that, too. We decided Billy would head back to Cape May for the rest of the day to try to get some rest and that we'd trade places around 10 o'clock tonight. I knew that his not getting much sleep the last couple nights was hard on him and that last night had been especially rough. And my response didn't help, I'm sure. I imagine our back and forth negotiations about telling Dutch or not telling Dutch and his final agreement to tell Dutch had also taken a toll on him. It takes a lot of energy to talk things through and to think things through. And I know it takes a lot of energy to negotiate with me too. Oh, I was betwixt and between though. I wasn't sure if it was best for Billy to take the night shift or for me to take the night shift. We're just doing our best to hold it together. I was still reeling from what happened last night with the chest tubes and his not telling me. I thought maybe it would be better if I just took the night shift. But Billy promised me he'd sleep today, so he would be alert tonight. Although, sleep may not have been the issue last night. I'm not sure about this, but it seems the reality of this is taking a toll on all of us. But sleep, it's always been a serious consideration in our marriage. Billy regularly needs eight or nine hours a night, and I've lived on five or six and oftentimes less for many years, you know, just doing the mom thing, raising five kids, keeping a house clean, making sure homework's finished, working. I mean, Billy does so much too, the dad thing but we're just wired differently, energetically. We always laugh and say, we're the yin and the yang for each other. Because let me tell you, Billy Sempt, he has taken care of me after every childbirth. He has fed me when I work too hard and always been a steady presence at home. I bet many of you have relationships like that too. Remember the old... Jack Spratt could eat no fat, his wife could eat no lean, and so between the two of them, they licked the platter clean. Yeah, that kind of thing. Truthfully, eyeballing that recliner chair in Archer's room, I knew would not be good for Billy. I was grateful for it, and I'm smaller, but I knew with its kind of knobby industrial fabric, and Petey had shown me this morning that it sort of had one main position midway between sitting and lying flat. I mean, no complaints, but Billy's sleep would be compromised. And that would not be good for our family to have a sleepy bear or a grouchy bear. Oh, but I was conflicted about trading places and taking on the nights because I'd missed the daytime. Most of the medical activity as best I can tell in these two days, happens during the daytime with the staff and certainly with visitors. 
We'll figure it out. As Billy walked out of Archer's room through the curtain into the hallway to head home, I said, hang in there, Shug. We'll make it through this. I knew we would. Wouldn't we? Life can change in the blink of an eye. You know, there's no telling how long it takes the brain, the heart, and the body to recover from trauma. I suppose each person, each body, each experience is unique. If you are interested in what really is happening to our brains in highly stressful situations and trauma, please write me at louise at blinkofaneyepodcast.com. You know what else? Families need a lot of support and to support each other when a traumatic event happens. A lot. It's darn near impossible for a child who is gravely injured to heal or recover without family support. And that child needs their parents to be strong and responsive. But it's not easy because the stark truth of a family crisis, especially involving a child, is that it throws a family into chaos. All normalcy is gone. Everyone is wounded in some way. Yes, in crisis, family need all the help they can get to hold it together. If families stay together, there is a much greater chance of everyone's recovery and healing. The parents, the kids, the whole unit. So what can you do to support families in crisis? Well, you can be present and encourage family members to be present for each other. I mean, just in the few hours of the shock for me, it was so powerful to have Davis and then Pete at my side. While it's true I have no recollection of either of them at my side, I do remember feeling I am not alone. I felt that. And I also believe I told Atlantic Care what Leah said I had told them, that she and Davis were my family. Because that sounds like something I would say that comes from a deep value I have to be with family. And I know I am not the only one with that value. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. The most common human expectation I have witnessed over the years as a mediator of families in crisis and conflict is that in our crises, we want our families at our side. In our deepest losses, we want our families to gather and be together, don't we? I think it might be one of our deepest yearnings in crisis and deep loss, and even for our seemingly dysfunctional or imperfect families. We cling to each other because we're familiar and we need each other. We're stronger together. I mean, we can't do crisis alone. No one can. And we don't have to when we have each other. Relationships, they are everything. Families, surrogate families, extended families. 
we can encourage brothers and sisters and extended family members to show up and be there for their families in crisis. And we can be there for others ourselves, especially in the really tough times. The presence of another caring human being itself is such a gift to others in crisis. That presence can also provide a sort of witnessing role. I bet you have provided the gift of your presence to someone else, a family member, a friend, a stranger, and your being by someone's side with them through their loss or crisis, it has ripple effects. It's a pay-it-forward kind of act when you do that. It comes from the heart and is thus the right thing to do. It's like you're guided by angels, you know? You do it because you care about that child or that person's well-being. Presence. It's such a kind act. And it holds people together. And when you give the gift of your presence to someone in crisis, it can be like a little miracle. It's as if you are saying to them, even in the wreckage of your trauma, we are here with you. You are not alone. We love you. And it's okay if they don't remember who all is present or not. Their body knows and their soul remembers. It's good karma, as they say. Loss, upheaval, trauma, it's not easy. It's hard and it's sort of crazy and it can feel lonely. So let's right now send a collective special intention out for any family that comes to mind that has experienced or is experiencing a crisis or deep loss. It could be your own family. Let's send our intention for them to feel our collective presence, that they feel they are not alone, especially if they feel shattered or abandoned. And let's send out to the world our wonder at the resilience of families and our awe of their capacity to endure and love each other in spite of the carnage of trauma. And let's send our gratitude for all those who willingly step into the shoes of being the surrogate family or extended family, especially when the immediate family can't be there or is not there, who stand by our side and care for us when we need them most. And lastly, for ourselves, let us look forward to the days when we will understand more about trauma and the workings of the brain and how to awaken our capacity to care for each other in the midst of an unfolding of our traumas. And until then, let us feel carried. Carried by what you already know, that you are loved, 
and are never alone. Life is precious. Sending love. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Please subscribe on our site, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen. If you have a story to share, please contact Louise Phipps Semph directly, louise at blinkofaneyepodcast.com. She would love to hear from you.